I'm your host, David Nage. This is Baselayer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Baselayer podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of ARCA, where David Nage is a principal. ARCA is not responsible and does not verify the accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast series available for listening. The primary purpose of this podcast series is to educate and inform. The podcast series does not constitute financial advice or other professional advice or services. Please do your own research. Welcome back to Base Layer. This is David, and boy, do I have an episode for you folks. I have Ben, the co-founder of Optimism, with me today. Ben, how are you? Hey, David. I'm doing, doing very well. How about yourself? Doing fantastic. Really excited about this. What I wanted to do at the beginning of 2024 was to highlight some of the layer ones and layer twos of the world, really kind of describe why they exist, what's happening out there, and who's building on them. Because at the end of the day, we need to get people using these things and they need to be using them because they're functional and they're fast and they create a great experience. Optimism is definitely in that camp. Uh, we're going to talk all about what optimism is. Again, you know, kind of in the layer two, I'm using air quotes, layer two, part of the ecosystem. We're going to talk about what that is. We're going to talk about what an optimistic roll-up is. We're going to talk about all the new things that are happening there in terms of super chain. And we're going to talk about some of the use cases happening in different sectors and subsectors of the ecosystem. But before we get into this, what I always like to do, especially when I have a great founder or co-founder on the show, is just give them a few minutes and talk about how and why they did what they did before and how do they get to this world? How do they create optimism or some of the other places that we've talked to? So Ben, if you could, you know, what did you do before optimism and what inspired you and your colleagues to build it? Yeah, happy to get some story. Again, thanks for having me on, David. My background is not in computer science. As a matter of fact, it is in uh, math and physics. That's what I studied in uh, in undergrad. And, you know, basically along the way, I realized a couple of things. One thing was that the academic space was a very, very slow one, right? It was a long slog to get to the top. And two, that this crazy Bitcoin thing that I had used to like play poker online uh, when I was younger had transformed into something bigger. And that really, to me, was Ethereum. When I sort of learned about the evolution of Ethereum beyond Bitcoin, it sort of went from something that was interesting. I would follow, you know, like watch the subreddit drama, that kind of thing. But it wasn't something that I really wanted to dedicate my life to. And when Ethereum came around, that was when the kind of light bulb went off for me. Once we got to a point where it wasn't just this one application, this one digital gold, but actually sort of like a computational substrate that shared all of those incredible properties that you could use to build arbitrary applications. That's what got me super, super, super excited. So yeah, before uh, Optimism, I was working at the Ethereum Foundation, um, basically doing um, research on um, crypto economics. Uh, sort of, you know, through that, found some awesome folks in those circles, uh, my co-founders, uh, Jing and Carl. And ultimately, what we realized was that there was this scaling problem that crypto had. And the reality was that while we could be extremely, extremely excited and, you know, get super happy and jazz and do the career pivot that I was, you know, ready and had done, it was clearly not yet ready for the masses. Clearly, if we went to even you know thousands of users, we were going to run into to, to scalability issues and things were going to get more and more expensive. 
So yeah, the early days of optimism, we sort of had a group of folks that all acknowledged that. It was like, okay, these Ethereum transactions are just a couple of cents today, but obviously that's not going to work if we're going to scale to a bunch of people. At the same time, there was like a very, very, very active community in the Ethereum ecosystem trying to do that scaling. And we had a we found that we had a role to play there and, and could provide value. And yeah, that's how it all got started. Originally, we were actually just like a nonprofit. Um, we just basically published research on scaling for designs for other folks to use. Along the way, we realized that it was very, very difficult to get uh, public goods like free research um, funded. And we realized that the scaling opportunity on the technological side was actually also an opportunity to scale the public goods that were making everything possible. So right. yeah, that's kind of a bit about the the origin of, of optimism. Amazing. Uh, and again, for those that we're going to break it down a little bit and I'll give you guys a kind of a kind of a view here. So we're going to go a little bit 101. So for those that are OP fanatics, if, if that's what you guys call each other in the ecosystem, OP fanatics, or whatever it is, for those optimists. that are optimists, for the optimists, you just, you know, we're, we're trying to broaden the scope here. We want to bring lots of people into this world and we want, want lots of people to be excited about it. So we're going to go a little into the one-on-one, but then we're going to go into a little bit more heavy stuff. So at the very core of this, you know, right now there's, we're also going to talk about, as I said, event super chain. We're going to talk a little bit about the differential between OP mainnet and optimism. But right now, you know, we're going to dive right in. So OP Mainnet is a fast, st a stable, and scalable L2 blockchain built by Ethereum developers, as Ben alluded to, for Ethereum developers. Built as a minimal extension to existing Ethereum software, OP Mainnet's EVM equivalent architecture scales your Ethereum apps without surprises. If it works on Ethereum, it works on OP Mainnet as a fraction of the cost. Now let's talk about some of these kind of numbers here. because. It's big. Three billion plus gas fee saved. Two billion on-chain value and 141 million transactions on OP mainnet thus far. So let's talk about how have you been able to achieve these milestones really quickly? Mind you, this has not been out here for a decade. This has been here for a few years. Have you achieved this so far in such a short period of time? Yeah. So I really appreciate the kind words, right? I think the place to start there, especially in a one-on-one -on -one setting, is what does scalability mean and why do we need it, right? Like, yeah, that's a great number. I agree. I'm very excited to say we have $3 billion plus in gas fees saved. What does it actually mean, right? And in comparison to what? The short answer of it boils down to what you could call congestion, right? Another way to, to say it is um, throughput bottlenecks. It's maybe a more fancy way to say it, right? But at the end of the day, right, when I alluded back to in the early days of Ethereum, transactions were one cent. If you look at Ethereum today, transactions are not one cent. They're a lot more expensive, right? And why is that occurring? Well, the answer is because of congestion. It's because Ethereum only has so many transactions, you know, sort of per second, although that's maybe a broken metric. You hear that as a buzzword a lot, but you can think of it that way. There's only a certain amount of gas or transactions per period of time that Ethereum can process. And what happens is if you hit that limit and there's more demand for more transactions, then the, the price of transacting goes up, right? And that's how the, 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 the situation gets squared. So ultimately, the scalability problem is basically saying, how do we make that pipe bigger? How do we fit more stuff, more transactions that are able to be processed uh, per second without making some sort of sacrifice, right? Like 
there's obviously a naive way, which is like take a copy of, of Ethereum and just deploy it to a centralized web server and just right. run it, the chain on one node there, right? But if you've done that, you've kind of defeated the unstoppable permissionless, you know, right. point of crypto. So you have to find some deeper solution. Right. So that's the core of, core of the scaling of the scaling problem. How do we support more transactions um, without the congestion pricing kicking in and, and forcing a bunch of people out of the market? Right. So yeah, I think this gets us right into this. So you're you're talking about the scalability issue. You're talking about massive amounts of transactions now. For anyone who's been hovering or watching crypto for the last few years, you know this was kind of alluded to back in 2017 with Crypto Kitties. Then we started to see this with the rise of DeFi back in 2020, where you started to see hundreds, millions of transactions. As Ben is alluding to, you started to see the gas. Now, gas, for those, again, we, again we're again we going to go a little one-on-one. We're going to go right into it. If you don't know what gas is, you've been listening to my show for the last five years. I'm sorry. But gas is basically just a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a fee that is attached or can be a lot of it, a big fee that's attached to a transaction so you can get it done fast. Now, again, you're dealing with a distributed and decentralized network. And so if you want your transaction at the front of the line, sometimes you got to pay up for that. And so, you know, as more and more users have come on and you're dealing with a network that obviously has, you know, limits, you know, the gas fees go up. And so that's what Ben is alluding to. So this drives right into one of the core questions that I wanted you to kind of, you know, talk about with, you know, our our audiences, optimistic rollups. So for those that are not familiar with that, optimistic rollups basically post all the transactions on layer one. Basically, it's a way to not necessarily congest the layer one, but basically have it all packaged up and delivered at the same time. So I would love you just, you know, if you could, I know that was a very basic way. Again, I'm trying to break it down. I know there's a lot of complexities there. How would you describe optimistic rollups as being an integral part of optimism? Yeah, 100%. The place that I would start, uh, if you're more familiar with even more buzzwords like ZK rollups or Plasma or Validium, you'll hear a lot of other words, right? And so in general, what we're talking about here is a family of these solutions that are like layer two solutions or layered scaling. And in general, there's one fundamental thing that we are trying to do that I would sum up simply as use the chain more efficiently. That honestly is what everything boils down to, use Ethereum more efficiently. And you know, to build an intuition, Maybe an even stronger way to say this is don't go to court to cash a check, go to court if the check bounces. So maybe that gives you a bit of an intuition for how we use these systems more efficiently. Effectively, uh, what we can do is we can post, you you alluded to this before, and this is what the word rollup means, is we can post transaction data to Ethereum without actually executing it on Ethereum. That is sort of the key efficiency insight that gets you the scalability, right? And you talked about gas, right? Gas is sort of like the the actual more fundamental meter of how much stuff, how much computation, how much transactions Ethereum can process, right? And so, for example, uh, you might have uh, a simple Uniswap trade transaction, which swaps ETH for USDC, right? And that will have a certain gas price. If you were to do a multi-step Uniswap transaction where you go from ETH to USDC and maybe that gets traded to DAI and then that DAI even gets traded to some other coin, right? Then you're looking at 
four times the Uniswap trades, that's going to be four times the amount of gas, right? right? So it's not even just the number of transactions. It's actually the more complex the transactions, the fewer transactions Ethereum can handle. Right. So the core insight to building a rollup is to say, okay, well, maybe what we need to do here is make the transactions as cheap as possible. And when I say cheap, I really mean as consume as little gas upfront as possible. And that's the notion of don't go to court to cash a check, go to court if the check bounces. Yeah. So to build the rollup, as a matter of fact, what we do is we say, hey, even if you're doing a Uniswap trade, it doesn't matter how many hops or steps along the way, we're actually not going to execute that on Ethereum at all. Because the cheapest thing to do would just be to post some data. And if you don't have Ethereum itself react to that data, that's going to be super, super, super cheap. Yeah. And so that's the core of what we do with an optimistic rollup. Okay. That's fantastic. And thank you for the explanation there. So I think, and we, as I said, again, we're going to start one-on-one and we're going to get into it. So we're starting to get into it. Now, there are incentives. So if you think of a distributed network, you have obviously operators that are, you know, the validators and you have those that are the sequencers of, of the kind of the model. So I'm curious when you're trying to effectively, you know, this is all packets of information. You know, that's what transactions are. It's just packets of information that you're basically bundling together. So what type of incentives are used to ensure that the data, the packets of information is being delivered to the L1 properly? And then, you know, in your model, there is the sequencer. So what happens when a sequencer posts incorrect state routes? Very good question. I'll actually take that in reverse order because I think the, the logical continuation of this data posting is actually the incorrect state route. So let, let's start there. So, okay. So obviously uh, we described this system in which it has this very nice property that transactions are cheaper because you just post the transactions and you don't execute them on Ethereum. Right. Now that is great from a cost perspective, but it does beg the question, well, what does it mean to be posting a transaction that literally doesn't do anything? Like, yes, I, I can understand that a transaction that doesn't do anything is cheaper, but doesn't that defeat the whole purpose? Isn't it not a transaction at that point? And this is when you get into the notion of the quote unquote layer two chain. So while it's true that those transactions don't get executed on Ethereum, what you do is you build a layer two chain that treats those transactions in an extra manner, in like a, in a special manner. It kind of looks for transactions of this type that are posted with data that could be used to transact, but isn't being used to transact on a layer one. And it says, ah, I know what these are. These are layer two transactions. So even though Ethereum ignored them, I am going to take them and process them and convert that into a layer two chain, right? And so when you alluded earlier to the notion of um, gas saved or uh, value locked on chain, Mm -hmm. What we're referring to is uh, value and transactions in this layer two chain, right? And so OP mainnet was the first chain um, that we launched that did this. It was an optimistic rollup, right? So that's what it means. Uh, that, 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 that just kind of squares the circle on like, okay, you're posting data, but you're not doing anything with it. It's like, right. no, you do something with it at a different layer, hence right. the layer two moniker. Here right? you go. And there we go. We're firing on all cylinders. So then the last piece of the puzzle, of course, is how do you connect these systems together, mm -hmm. right? Because if you it, you obviously want to inherit all of the applications and the tokens and everything that's occurring on Ethereum, quote unquote, layer one in this, quote unquote, layer two context. Right. And effectively, what that boils down to is being able to deposit assets into that system and interact and then withdraw those assets later on. Okay. I think that makes a lot of sense. And so... We're going to go into a quick discussion on, well, not a quick discussion, but on a discussion on Superchain, and then we're going to talk about some of the things that Optimism is tackling in terms of some of the 
sectors and some of the kind of use cases that people are flocking to in terms of building on top of optimism. So Superchain in a rapidly evolving, this is coming from you in a rapidly evolving digital landscape, optimism is pioneering a path towards a collaborative superchain ecosystem, one where all chains are on a level playing field and where that which benefits one benefits all. This is something that I've noticed. As I said, again, January of this year, we spent a lot of time talking to the L1s and L2s out there. There seems to be an unwritten, but an agreement effectively with many of the ecosystems out there, the L1s and L2s, where we have seen this a few times. So Polygon has its CDK offering. Near has been talking about the blockchain operating system. And now you're discussing Superchain. What do you think has brought this type of collaborative notion into the ecosystem broad-based over the last called the last year? Why now is it why why is this happening now where it seems that all the L1, not all, but most of the L1s and L2s are now trying to figure out ways to collaborate with each other. And then we're going to talk about things in terms of optimism versus OP mainnet. And then, for those that are really geeking out on this stuff, we're going to talk about how optimism differentiates from, say, Celestia or Eigenlayer. So let's talk about Superchain first, and let's talk about this kind of collaborative approach that the, the ecosystem in general is starting to take right now and talk about Superchain. Sure, let's do it. So I think there's two parts to the question that you asked. One part is why are these quote unquote multi-chain, multiple layer twos, you even hear terms like layer three, why are various projects taking that approach? And then you also asked about the timing. I think it's interesting to explore why now, but let's just start with why it's happening in the first place. So one thing that we didn't talk about that I'll just briefly allude to um, in the previous section is what does that quote unquote layer two chain looks like? look like, right? Because it's no, kind of like, arbitrary software, we could implement something crazy. Like for example, these layer two chains that I described, we could have them follow the rules of Bitcoin, right? That sounds super weird. It's not really intuitive, right? But there's no reason, right? Once you're writing software that says, hey, I'm gonna look at these transactions that do nothing on Ethereum and interpret them as doing something on this quote unquote layer two chain, right? You could, for instance, make the interpretation of what quote unquote what they do be like Bitcoin transactions and like use that form. It could even be compatible with Bitcoin wallets, right? So you could do that, but it's an important caveat that we want to scale Ethereum, right? And so at the end of the day, what makes the most sense is to kind of interpret the layer two chain as an Ethereum itself. And so we worked very, very, very hard to make that as true as possible. This quote unquote EVM equivalence that you alluded to earlier is exactly that. The goal is you should be able to take one of these um, applications that you've written on layer one Ethereum and redeploy it onto layer two with no changes. Everything should work from the wallets to the front end, to the smart contracts, right. all across the board. So. With that setup, the question becomes, okay, great. You've made one cheaper EVM chain. Why are you trying to create a bunch of them? Well, that gets into the final missing piece that we did not talk about in the scalability puzzle. And here's the, here's the reason why. If we only created one chain and we moved all of the activity of Ethereum layer one into an Ethereum layer two, what we're going to get is something that's just as expensive and congested as the layer one that we started with, because guess what? It's the same code base. And in fact, that's like a product feature of ours that the, diff, the sort of 
the diff, the change in the code to go from a layer one uh, Ethereum node software to a layer two Ethereum node software, we work hard to ruthlessly minimize the changes that we make because we want to borrow from the greatness of Ethereum and have the compatibility and be able to support all the tooling and applications and everything else. But the secret, you know, the secret trick that, that you uncover when you realize that is that if we moved all the activity into one chain, we would congest it just the same as we're congesting yeah. layer one Ethereum, right? So it's kind of fundamental to the approach of layer two scaling that you're going to have to have multiple chains, right? And we're working hard to make the one EVM, you know, sort of the one Ethereum chain have a big, be a bigger uh, throughput and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, it's going to boil down to if you're using layer one more efficiently, then you have to use multiple chains to really realize the full throughput increases. So, you know, in some ways it's a bit of a trick. Like in some ways it, it was inevitable that everyone was going to have to move to a multi-chain approach mm -hmm. because it, when you're not congested, you're cheap as heck. But if you get just as congested, congested as L1 Ethereum, you've defeated the purpose and you need to move somewhere else or the congestion is going to kick in just the same as it did with and it's crypto kitties all over again. Right. right? We don't want so, that. We don't want we don't want that. So that is the fundamental reason to move to one of these quote unquote multi-chain worlds, right? As far as why is the timing of that occurring in the past year now, I think there's a few things at play. The number one thing is just that the maturity of these systems are finally uh reaching a point where that seems like a credible path, right? So if you were to look at the state of OP mainnet when we launched it three or four years ago, the reality is that the expertise that that required and the bugs that we went and fixed over years of maintaining that deployment, it was just simply not at a point where we could credibly go to a bunch of teams and say, hey, we encourage you to go deploy your own chain, right? Like Ethereum infrastructure and just the smart contracts and everything is already like a nascent field that developers have to learn and grapple with. If right. you add on the overhead of running a chain, that just that that complexity explodes. So I think the reasons that we're starting to see it today are one because the layer twos are starting to approach the congestion limits, and so it's like actually becoming the point in which we need to move to multiple chains. I think it's also just the nature of the maturity of these ecosystems. The OK stack has gone through like a complete rewrite a couple of years ago. We took all the lessons throughout all of the bad code and re-implemented from the ground up. As the maturity of these systems improves, it becomes a reasonable path to start having a bunch of chains and decongesting the system. So yeah, I think that's the two-parter. It was always necessary. And I think the systems are finally becoming ready to actually do it. Okay. So as we think about, again, optimism and OP mainnet, how would you, you know, for someone who's obviously trying to learn about everything that you've been building there for the last few years with your, with your partners, how would you differentiate that? And then again, as I said, we really I would love for your thoughts on how the vision that you've already laid out differentiates from some of the others out there. As I said, you know, two of the main ones that I was thinking through is Celestia and Eigenlayer. Cool. Yeah, I'll take those one at a time. In terms of how we think about OP Mainnet, we now think about the super chain. And OP Mainnet was the first chain in the super chain because it was the first chain that we deployed. But ultimately, the strength in numbers game is the one to win out here. So a bunch of our focus is on doing things that scale, not just OP mainnet, but all of the other incredible chains in the OP uh, ecosystem, right? Mm -hmm. Base is the first block space produced by a Fortune 500 company. That's right. a part of the super chain. You've got Zora Network doing incredible work um, having that has a chain for NFTs. Mm -hmm. They're all doing incredible work. So in terms of like the growth metrics that I personally look at and perceive, 
all of my time now is focused on growing these other chains. Like OP Mainnet is good. It's always going to be there as this core foundational chain. But the reality is, is that we live or die by the success of all of the chains in this network, no one of them. Because by definition, no one is going to work. I love so that. I love that. That is that is the ethos of, of crypto too, is that it was never supposed to be, you know, one winner take all. It was... It's got to be positive sum. Yeah. It's rising tide lifts all boats. And exactly. I love that. That was great. Exactly. Like the, the money, the whole money Legos thing, right? Just like we had money Legos as the DeFi craze yeah. on Ethereum, right? The chains need to be Lego pieces too, or what the heck is the point of all of this? Yeah, exactly. So while I have you still, and I know, again, Ben is co-founding of you know, Optimism, so it's, you know the time that we're getting here is phenomenal here. So we're going to ask two last questions here. And you know, I want to talk about you know, kind of sectors. And you know, for the last few years, you've seen certain L1s like Solana try to tackle gaming, Avalanche has tried to tackle gaming, have tried to tackle DeFi. And when I say tackle, you know, when I say tackle, it's not... I'm not trying to say that they're trying to win it all, but they're, you know, it's one of the areas that they've had a lot of developers, you know, flock to. And whether that's because, you know, simplistic designs with the SDKs that are coming in, you know, either very simplistic installations via, via Remix, um, there's been things that other ecosystems have done to try to win a lion's share of the developer community in certain sectors. So we'd love to hear what your thoughts about, you know, for this year into next for optimism are for, you know, certain sectors that you believe, you know, you were primed to capture. And then, you know, while, you know, the last few minutes here, Ben, is what we always like to do at the end is always ask folks, what is the things or what are the things that we should be looking at for the next six or 12 months, specifically from optimism, milestones and things that are coming, you know, to market from you guys that we should be on the lookout for. So let's talk about kind of sectors, what, you know, if anything out there is is kind of you're igniting, and then let's talk about the next you know, six or 12 months. Yeah, in terms of sectors, I think we're in a fortunate position to be building infrastructure that we hope will apply to many, 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 many sectors, right? And if you look at the successes of the OP chains that are, that are there so far, like Zora is a I think a crown jewel of success in the art and NFT space, right? Like they are really pushing the boundaries on what's possible every day and fostering this incredible community and incredible amounts of innovation. So I'm really proud of that. Obviously across base, OP mainnet, there's lots of DeFi activity going on, right? In some ways that just follows the, the same distribution that we see on Ethereum where there's a lot of DeFi activity. And beyond that, ultimately the goal of the OP stack is to be extremely modular. And what that means is it's meant to be able to fulfill whatever purpose a customer demands, right? And the way that we go about doing that architecturally is this term modularity. Basically, what it means is that the OP stack was built so that each of the sort of subcomponents of the system are as interchangeable as they possibly can be, right? So if you look at different verticals, it seems like ultimately all of them want decentralized, you know, sort of secure, provable block space. And beyond that, there are lots of different optimizations that you want, right? Some folks like in the DeFi sector might really care about uh, the ordering of transactions being more secure. And so you have the ability to plug in a sequencing module that might implement it more secure. On the other end of the spectrum, you might have a gaming company that really cares about speed and latency. And so for them, a centralized sequencer can produce the lowest possible latency because there's the least decentralized overhead. So yeah, ultimately, 
I, th I think we hope to serve all of these markets and the modularity of the code base is kind of one of the superpowers there. I would say that the other superpower is the openness. And what I mean by that is that all of the code that I'm talking about to go and deploy one of these chains and make any of the modifications or do any of the stuff that we were just talking about, you are free to go so, do so. The OP stack is MIT licensed, like a public good to the core. It doesn't require us to talk to anyone or us to do anything for somebody to take an entire copy of the system and spin it up and go and experiment. So hopefully the modularity is in perfect harmony with exactly that property that everyone can go and experiment. So even if you know, we as the Optimism Foundation don't find the next takeoff vertical, the goal is for the OP stack to give the tools and put the power in the hands of those who are going to find those, find those breakthroughs and get us to the next million billion users. And they can do it without talking to us, without our permission, that's core to our ethos. So yeah, kind of a two-parter answer there on uh, on the verticals. We're trying to solve everything, but we're not going to do it alone. Yeah, I love that. You know, one of the things that, you know, has started to, you know, for those that are, you know, obviously learning about you know, all the things that are happening in the ecosystem, the modular approach started to really resonate over the last, I'd say the last 16 or so months. And again, to Ben's point, you know, when we think about even, you know, if you break it down to something simplistic that we deal with every single day, think about your mobile bill, your telephone bill, and think about your kind of cable bill. You know, we stopped over a few years ago, we stopped saying, no, I don't want, it doesn't have to all be bundled together. I want to be able to say, okay, I want, you know, some high, you know, I want some bandwidth and I don't want, you know, HBO and all this other crap. Uh, same thing with your phone. It's like, no, I don't want to pay for this, this, and this. I just want to pay for that. And so it fits into the narrative of, you know, what we've been doing over the last few years as a society in terms of our kind of appetite for things is that we want that a la carte approach. We want the modularity approach. So love that. So next six to 12 months, what are some of the things that are going to be, you know, on the docket, the milestones that Optimism is trying to hit? You know, what are some of the things that we should be keeping our eyes on? Oh, man. So much, so much that I'm excited for. I don't know where to begin, David. <laughs> you know, I, I one of the big ones is the proof system. So, you know, we talked about this uh, go to court if the check bounces mechanism yep. to really put the fundamental security of the system uh, into that proof system is a very, very, very high bar for security. And so I'm very, very, very excited for us to get there. It also requires a lot of work. And so I, I think in the next year, that's all coming to a, a peak. And so I'm super, super excited about that. You know, that, that's a pretty like technical low level one. I think the other thing that I'm super excited for is um, adding support in the OP stack for alternative data availability layers. So um, that's a pretty uh, technical one. And I, I, so I'll, I'll try to run, run through it very quickly here at the end. You'll notice what, just like just like you could have gotten me with the gotcha around. Oh well, if you congest the one layer two chain, doesn't it become just as expensive as the uh, as the layer one was in the layer two? Just like that, <laughs> just like you could got, do a gotcha there. I'll tell you the next gotcha that you could go and do, which is to say this: Hey, sure, you can distribute the data between between a bunch of chains, and now you maybe have I don't know ten or a hundred chains, and that ten or hundred x is the throughput of Ethereum. There's still that call data limit. And at the end of the day, even though we are posting things to L1 in the cheapest, most small way possible, right? Like I said, all we do is we like post the transaction as it's quote unquote rolling up the transaction. And we just say, hey, it's been posted. Don't do anything else with it, Ethereum. Even then that has, it's much lower, but it does have a fundamental cost to Ethereum. And that means that 
you can't support infinite rollups on Ethereum because even though the transactions uh, are much, much, much cheaper in terms of gas, they require much less compute, it's non-zero, you're still posting some data. And so at the end of the day, e even when you do the multi-chain scaling thing that I talked about, with rollups, you are going to run into a limit. And that limit will be once all of the chains posting all of their transactions to Ethereum also triggers the congestion that the regular transactions were, were triggering previously. So at the end of the day, if you want true scalability nirvana, the ability to cert, like take all of the internet's activity and turn it into on-chain activity, you do need to take it one step further. And this is the notion of using uh, a different quote-unquote data availability layer for yeah. Ethereum. And that is where you get the true in, sort of quote-unquote infinite horizontal scale. And you, I think you even alluded to projects like uh, EigenDA and Celestia yeah. and Avail, and there's a number of others, right? Th those are teams that are trying to serve that goal. At the end of the day, you also need chain software that can plug into those um, to be able to serve the users. And mm -hmm. that is something that I'm super, super, super excited about um, in, the next, in the next six months. It's basically what we call Plasma. Plasma is the secure way to use a different data availability layer, but still have that property that the ultimate uh, sort of court system is L1 Ethereum. And so you still can inherit that L1 security. So that is what I'm super, super excited for. Um, shout out to Redstone. Uh, the, the, the development work is actually not being driven by someone at OP Labs or the Optimism Foundation. It's being driven by some incredible folks um, at a team called Lattice. They're building autonomous worlds. They have a game uh, framework. And shout out their chain, um, Redstone, which is the first OP Plasma chain. You can go play, play an incredible real-time strategy game on Testnet today. Every click that you make is a transaction on chain. That kind of thing is only possible in the regime of using non-L1 data availability. And it's super, super exciting. So I think that's going to be in the next uh, six to 12 months, the next big evolution of the OP stack. Well, I love strategy games. So I'm definitely doing that after I speak with you. So this is this has been awesome. You know, I, there's so much happening here. And, you know, shout out to Renee over at Solo for obviously putting us together because, you know, I wanted to speak with you guys and I wanted the world to hear about everything that was happening in Optimism because there's so much happening there. And as you alluded to, you alluded to just a few different companies in the space, but so many projects are using the OP stack to get up to speed and be able to get to market fast. And again, it's not, it shouldn't take forever. You know, I, I kind of date myself and I always go back to this is that, you know, back in the, the mid 90s, you know, if you wanted before Wix came out, you would have to if you wanted an e-commerce site, you would have to have a group of developers, you know, build out a website and build out all the plugins to payments, et cetera, et cetera. And then Wix came out and basically made it a few clicks. And then all of a sudden you saw this massive J curve of, you know, kind of explosion of e-commerce. And so it's not supposed to be difficult. Yes, this is very complex things. And yes, what Ben and the team at Optimism are doing are very complex things, especially from the cryptography and mathematics side of things. But for the everyday user who wants to be able to lever these types of, you know, kind of architectural designs, what you guys are doing is phenomenal. And so we'll make sure that everyone knows everything about Optimism. We'll put it all in the show notes. Ben, thank you so much for joining us on today. And hopefully we can have you back on soon. Thanks, David. It was a blast. Happy to be here, man. Thanks for listening in to Baselayer. If you like the show and all the different guests that we've brought on, please give a like and subscribe on Apple or Spotify or wherever you do listen to the podcast. Also, if you want to have a conversation or reach out to me, you can reach me out on Twitter at David J. Nage. 
and let's talk there. Or also you can find me on LinkedIn and I look forward to having great conversations with you all about digital assets.